0: solar-powered plane is circling the Earth, and it has huge implications for the impact of transportation on the environment. Hi everybody, I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. The Solar Impulse 2 is currently engaged in a 21,747-mile circumnavigation of the globe. As you might expect, the project involves major innovations in power and materials, including the use of high-tech polymer products created by the company called Covestro. On today's show, I have Richard Northcote, Chief Sustainability Officer with Covestro. He talks about the groundbreaking materials that the company has contributed to the Solar Impulse 2 which at the time of our conversation was in Hawaii and about to take off for the U.S. West Coast in a journey that began and ends in Abu Dhabi. For all of the interest in the notion of a solar-powered plane, the real significance of the project to Northcote are the many new materials that are lighter, stronger, and more environmentally sustainable than the stuff that goes into most aircraft and ground vehicles today. The use of carbon dioxide for mattress foam alone results in a 30% reduction in the use of oil. The result is bound to be dramatic reductions in fossil fuels and a cleaner transportation sector overall. So here is my conversation with Richard Northcote. Richard Northcote, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you. It's great to be it's great to be on the program.
0: Tell me about the Solar Impulse two. What is it?
1: We should really start with Solar Impulse one, and, and Solar Impulse was the brainchild of Bertrand Picard. And Bertrand, many of your listeners might know, is the first man to circumnavigate the, the planet using a balloon. And when he finished his epic journey uh, many years ago. He describes it as finishing with a thimble full of fuel left in his tank, which he found very worrying. But when he thought about it, he realized how much fuel he's actually burnt to get around the world. And he swore then and there that he was never going to waste that much fuel again. And the next time he circumnavigated the planet, he wanted to do it purely by the power of the sun. So he set about that to build a plane, that could fly around the world and use nothing but the sun for energy. But the thing was, when he approached the aviation manufacturers and said, "This is his dream. This is what he wanted to do," he would basically send packing. And told this was impossible. It couldn't be done. So Bertrand, being Bertrand, went to uh, a boat builder, who in fact is the boat builder for the Swiss yachts for the America's Cup, who didn't realize it was impossible. So he set about with Bertrand to design and build a plane. And and that's when we at Cadastro got involved because he was looking for the lightest materials possible. He needed to create something that had a huge wingspan to uh, use the solar power and the solar panels that were needed. Uh, so many of them were needed to fly the plane. And it had to be so light that it could travel at not such uh, fast speeds as nothing like uh, the other planes you see in the sky. He did this, he crossed America with it, and then he set about building Solar Impulse 2. And Solar Impulse 2 has basically built on the technologies of the first one to enable him and his partner Andre Boschberg to fly around the world. And that's where we've come in, because there's a lot of new technology on there, which is pretty cool and allows this this epic journey to happen.
0: You know, I want to talk about that, but I just want to find out, though, where is the Solar Impulse 2 right now? It is is in the Uh, process of circumnavigating, even as we speak. Is that correct or not?
1: It is indeed. And you actually find me in in Honolulu. I, I, I arrived last night, and... The plane is here in Hawaii. It's all mission ready to go. And and basically, we're monitoring the weather on a daily basis because we have a four to five journey now, a day journey across the Pacific. It started in Abu Dhabi last year. And from Abu Dhabi, it uh, went through the Middle East. It crossed over to India, down to Myanmar. From Myanmar, it went to China. And then it got stuck in China for quite a long time because of weather uh, problems. And eventually, when it did take off, it set off to cross the Pacific to Hawaii um, round about August last year. It had a few problems on the way because of weather. It had to turn back and uh, ended up uh, spending a couple of weeks in Japan. And then when the weather improved again, it set off to Hawaii. And by the time it got to Hawaii, unfortunately, it had managed to to burn out one of the batteries and, and a couple of the others were slightly damaged. So... They decided, uh, or, or Bertrand and Andre decided, that they would winter in Hawaii, which is not a place, bad place to winter, <laughs> and wrap the plane up, get the batteries fixed, and then kickstart the, kick the journey again uh, this year. And we're at that point now where everything's ready to go, and we're about to head to the West Coast as soon as the weather uh, is ready for us.
0: And when do they hope that the plane will have completed its circumnavigation to the globe?
1: The idea now is to push on and, and get it done as quickly as possible. Um, they obviously want to finish it this year. Uh, we're looking at sometime in the summer and it's very difficult to predict uh, mainly because of the weather uh, conditions that we face. Finding these windows in the weather, which is pretty mixed up at the moment, is, is the hard part. So from here it will go to the west coast, eventually down to Phoenix. Um, It will rest in Phoenix and then start its journey again across the U.S., ending up at JFK in New York. And then it's the the big Atlantic crossing over to Europe. And from there, it will head down to Abu Dhabi, where it began. The whole journey began and complete its journey. So it's impossible to say when, but it will definitely be this year.
0: Let's talk about Covestro's role in the construction of this plane. What is it exactly that your company did for them?
1: I think one of the, the most interesting things about why we got involved in the first place, when Bertrand met with my chief executive, Patrick Thomas, it was a meeting of minds, really. Bertrand explained what he was trying to do. And Patrick also has the, the same sort of pioneering spirit and really is, is into pushing the boundaries of science and was intrigued by this and said, we want to be part of this. We want to help. So we signed up in in partnership, we're a technical partner, and we basically then put about 30 or 40 uh, R&D people onto this project, and and really what we were looking for was how we could use the the technology that we're constantly developing to aid and and about this journey as as it goes around the world. So we ended up actually designing and building the cockpit for the pilot. The cockpit is made from a polyurethane foam. This is not dissimilar to the foam that is used in insulation materials and in construction or in insulation in the fridge. And, and the reason we've used this is it's got a fantastic structural strength, but the main thing is insulation properties. The pilots, when they're flying, are experiencing external temperatures of between minus 40 and plus 40 degrees. So if you're flying at night at the heights of 8,000 meters, then you know, it's pretty cold. There is no heating on board. There's no air conditioning on board. So the, the insulation is critical to keeping the pilot warm and safe at these times. And as you can, you know, this, this 80 degrees centigrade span of temperatures is really quite dramatic when you have to cope with it. So we designed and built that. We also provide the insulation for the batteries as well, because polyurethane insulation is, is the best insulation you can possibly get. And then the windscreen. And so we, we've we supplied a polycarbonate. Now, in the past, you know, all windscreens tend to be glass because of the visual quality and everything else. So well, we developed a polyurethane, uh, sorry, a polycarbonate windscreen that for the first time actually gives the same visual quality as glass. So we're significantly reducing the weight that the plane has to carry. And then finally, a lot of the adhesives are are from us and uh, the coatings that that go on and give the plane this fantastic silver shimmery look. These are coatings that are put on to protect the solar panels and just make sure that the plane can withstand the weather conditions it has has to uh, put up with. And the final part, our final contribution is a thermoplastic that is used to make the seat. And the seat was actually quite critical because the pilot has to spend up to five days just sitting in this seat. So this is a very thin, comfortable film, which is air-filled. And the, the pilot from in inside the, the cockpit can, can change and adapt the pressure. If he wants to sleep 15 minutes or if he wants to be more alert, he can, he can adapt the pressure of the, of the seat. So basically, the contribution covers all the chemistry that, that we're involved in as a company. And we've tweaked it. We've made some differences and it's the first use of probably um, what is now the best insulation foam on, on the planet. And many people thought that when refrigerators got to you know AAA plus standard that we couldn't get any more energy efficient. Well, Solar Impulse carries a new insulation material that actually gives you 10% more insulation value. And this is the first use of this microcell foam which will now start to appear in the the next generation of refrigerators when they start coming out.
0: So some of these materials you had employed before, and some of them were developed and innovated specifically for the Solar Impulse aircraft, is that correct? Well,
1: it's correct to to a certain extent, because, I mean, basically, we, we work with only two chemistries. I think a lot of people are surprised. You know, we have polyurethane and polycarbonate, but these chemistries are just... They offer so much potential, and we're constantly developing and constantly innovating to meet the requirements that that customers, or in this case, the project had. And it's constantly tweaking and playing with these com-chemistries that is allowing us to improve constantly the products that we're bringing to market. Uh, and just, just to give you an example, maybe we use new materials, new raw materials, new sources of materials. And the big one that, that's coming out now, is not in the plane, but it would be if it, if it had been there in time, is we're about to start using carbon dioxide as a raw material to make mattress foam in the future. And this is going to re- result in a 30% reduction in the use of oil substituted with the carbon from from carbon dioxide. So these are the kind of technologies that that we're working with and constantly women
0: now you take you take the co2 gas and you extract the <laughs> carbon from the gas and it becomes a material how, how exactly
1: right this actually is is so linked to the solar impulse as well because we actually call this this uh, internally we call this dr- dream reaction we we spent thirty years three zero years working on this so, you know one of our scientists many years ago had this idea that this this should be able to be possible now. The problem is, with, with all gases, and particularly greenhouse gases, is that they don't lend themselves to this. So what we had to do is, we worked with a university in Germany, we worked with a power producer, and we came up with a catalyst, uh, and this was the secret, and allowing, uh, you know, finding the catalyst that allows you to play with these gases and to extract the carbon, and use that instead of oil. And this is, this is a huge breakthrough. And because what we expect this to lead to now is a whole new range of polymers in in, in the future that will come out from methane or from CO2. And this is the kind of vision that our, our CEO has. He really wants to push the boundaries of science. And obviously, the big thing is we have to make sure that we're not wasting carbon. We're not wasting fossil fuels. We're not wasting a lot of the energy, potential energy that we have. So finding new ways to, to overcome this is so
0: important. Well, where do you get the CO2? Can you actually get the CO2 from CO2-emitting factories or, or, or yeah. transportation modes and things like that, stuff that would otherwise just go into the atmosphere and do harm to the atmosphere by creating excessive levels of CO2? That's the CO2 that you can draw on for your purposes?
1: Exactly, and then this one, uh, the plant we're about to open, is the first plant of this kind in the world. It is a pilot plant, but it's a commercial pilot plant. It's in Germany. It's on one of our production sites, and in fact, another company producing ammonia on the plant does emit CO2, and we're taking that. We're just basically taking that from the flue and scrubbing it and pushing it back into the system, catalyzing it, and then using the carbon from that.
0: Do you foresee a time when... What you do could be on such a scale as to actually have a beneficial impact on the amount of c o two in the atmosphere, or will it always be kind of a small scale side sort of sort of thing in your estimation?
1: This for us this is a huge trigger for what can be done in the future. now initially yes the the, the the question is always raised it is a very small amount of you know what is very large emitted gas at the end of the day. And we can't use it all at the moment, but if the minute you start looking at, well, if we can do it with this, what else can we do it with? And and actually, we've got another product which is it's still at uh, research scale, made from CO2 as well. And this is an elastomer. It's not this like a rubber. If you if you think about the uh, the window trim on your car, that. Plasticky, rubbery stuff that goes around the, the window. It feels and looks exactly like that. And that's made, this one that I've just seen is, is made 100% from CO2. So the opportunities are there and the interest is there. And obviously the timing's right. You know, with all the all the talk that's going on that with the Sustainable Development Goals, with COP21, with society's need to address this urgently that's going to spur a lot more of these developments coming forward.
0: I want to get back to the materials side of the question for a moment and ask you, you know, in the construction of some very large aircraft by Boeing and other aircraft manufacturers, we've heard in recent years about the increasing dependence on the use of synthetic and composite uh, new materials of that kind that are lighter, yeah. are stronger, are they in any way related to the materials that you are producing or is that a completely separate kind of thing?
1: Ultimately, they're all, they're all sort of related. I mean, they are different and, and we have some breakthroughs there. I mean, what I've been talking to you is about polyurethane chemistry. When you start looking at polycarbonate chemistry, that's where it gets interesting from a, a composite uh, point of view. And just to give you an example, we have another development and another product that's coming through, which is a polycarbonate composite material. Now, this, for the first time, we've actually achieved a feel and a look that is not dissimilar from aluminium. So you actually touch a plastic and you get that cold, slightly cold feel that you get from aluminium. Now, that's great, but that's purely cosmetic. What's really cool about this is it weighs about 30% of the weight of aluminium that it has the strength of steel. And where we're going to see this one being used is initially we we expect to see it come through into the laptop industry, into the electronics industry, but ultimately we view that there's a real potential in uh, transportation for for this kind of material. If you think about, you know, if we want to speed up the, the use of electric vehicles, one of the big hindrances is weight, so we've got to be able to reduce that. And uh, it also has uh, potential in in other forms of transportation as well.
0: But the strength and safety of these new materials, are they up to snuff? You know, in in the case of the use of an automobile, for instance, can they withstand collisions better or worse or the same as standard types of materials Mm -hmm. in use today?
1: That's what we've got to get to, and and I think everybody knows what the limitations are. If you can put a a material out that is the strength of steel, 30% the weight of aluminium, and is made from a composite that is recyclable then it gets really interesting. I mean, obviously, we have to go through all the safe processes and everything else to make sure that the materials are as good. And the other thing, of course, is are we always going to drive around at 100 miles an hour in petrol-fueled cars, or are we going to have limited speeds as transportation changes and electrified vehicles become the norm? There's a lot of things, uh, um, a lot of external influences that need to be looked at. And I know, for example, in China, where this whole... Uh, the automotive sector is becoming a real problem. If you look at the cities of Shanghai and Beijing and and the pollution and everything else that's, that's associated with it, they're seriously looking at new modes of transportation and moving away from what we know as traditional uh, cars and everything else.
0: Well, you say if you can do these things, if you can develop a material that is as strong as steel and yet so much lighter uh, and, and all of those uh, criteria that you just mentioned – is that still an if? In other words, how far are we toward that becoming a reality that could be applied to everyday types of transportation?
1: It's not an if. We have developed it. It's just a matter now of making sure that it is suitable. We know the technology is there, but we have to make sure that when you build a car using this material or build some other form of transportation, that all the aspects of safety are taken into account. It's not purely the the safety. I mean, there are all sorts of other things that you benefits that you get when you're using steel or aluminium, which which is crumple tests, and uh, if you're using glass, it shatters. So it, you can escape. If you're using unbreakable polymers, then it, it changes the way are uh, looked at. So there's a what I'm saying is the technology is there, and we know we know we can do it. Now governments have to basically make sure that all the right legislation's in place and society has to be uh, willing to accept it because I think there are a lot of technologies around that society looks at or, or individuals look at and say well actually I preferred what I had before but as we change the, the mindset as people become more aware and more concerned about the environment and the damage we we are doing to the environment that's where we hope to see the step change in the way people react And you know, on April 22nd, uh, the governments of the world are going to get together and sign the COP21 agreement. Um, I think the world's now waiting to see. Well, what does that mean? What legislation is going to be be put in place to make sure we can maintain the temperature rises at below uh, two two degrees or or limit them to one and a half degrees? These are really important questions, which a lot more of society is looking at and concerned about.
0: On the solar side, I assume that that's not really the issue so much in terms of commercial transportation. I think you've described this as a symbolic project as it relates to the use of solar energy for commercial transport. Is that correct?
1: Exactly that. It's symbolic in that everybody said it was impossible, um, but then everybody said uh, Lindbergh's flight was impossible as well, and 20 years later, passengers were, were you know were flying across the Atlantic. I think that is ne- has never been the intention of, of Solar Impulse. It was to prove that you could do something using nothing but the sun for power, that everybody said you couldn't be done. And the minute you have that breakthrough, then people start to think about what else could, could, could we do with that. And, and I've already seen there's a lot of a lot of stuff going on in solar ships, for example. There's a lot of work being going on, but I think what Solar Impulse has done in the air. Has spurred more thinking on the sea as well. I think electrified vehicles, the use of batteries. There's only four batteries on this plane, uh, and it, it's still you now enough to keep it going indefinitely in the air. So you know it, it charges during the day and it uses the battery power at night to keep going. So I think it, it spurred a lot of thinking, a lot of ideas in a different in different ways, and it spurred industries like ours to think about these new materials. So how do we continuously get to to drive lighter and stronger materials and thereby reducing our dependence on fossil fuel.
0: These are some really exciting developments that bode very well for the future of our technology and transportation and lots of other areas as well. Uh, But in the meantime, uh, Richard, Richard Northcote, I want to thank you so much for introducing us to Cavestro and what you folks are doing with the Solar Impulse and elsewhere and kind of giving us the idea of what the future might hold. So thank you so much for being with us.
1: It's been a real pleasure, and, and thanks for giving me the chance to talk. As you as you probably hear, I, I'm quite passionate about this, and it, it's great to be part of this great adventure. So thanks again.
0: That was my conversation with Richard Northcote of Covestro, talking about how new materials can create a more sustainable transportation industry. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com